Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. The Congo. The country has an amazing history. From exploitation, to wars, to political instability, to tragedy. As a brief recap, in part one of this series on the history of Congo, we shared about how Belgium was formed, gained independence, and how King Leopold II finagled his way to getting full personal control of the Congo Free State. Then, Belgium took over the Congo Free State in 1908 as a colony for over 50 years. Congo then gained independence in 1960. In part two, we learned how tumultuous the first five years were. This period was known as the First Republic and had secessions, murder of leaders, the Simba Rebellion in 1964, the Congo Massacre in Stanleyville where Dr. Paul Carlson perished, and Mobutu's coup d'etat in 1965. In part three, we learned how Mobutu created a one-party country, jettisoned the constitution, and became a dictator. He then nationalized everything in 1971 and changed the country's name to Zaire. The economy went down and inflation skyrocketed. However, the rotten economy and deterioration of the country on all fronts resulted in civil unrest, causing expatriates to evacuate in 1991. Which now brings us to episode four in this series on the history of Congo. In the last episode, we heard from Paul Noren, who was born in Congo and has worked in Congo virtually his entire life. He shared how they had only a few hours to evacuate to safety into Central African Republic in 1991. With the missionaries gone and most European merchants gone, this ushered in a new era for the Zaireans again. So, Tim, what do you know about the Rwanda genocide? I know almost nothing about the Rwanda genocide. Do you know the names of the tribes that fought in Rwanda in 1994? I do not. Have you ever heard of Paul Kagame? I have not. Have you ever heard of Laurent Kabila? I have not. Do you know how President Mobutu ended his reign in Zaire? I do not. Could you identify Zaire on a map? as it relates to where Congo is on a map? I could not. Are they separate countries? I don't know. The government began to crumble and the democratic momentum took hold. The Sovereign National Conference began to create a provisional constitution. A transitional government was appointed and Etienne Chesiketi became prime minister. But Mobutu wasn't giving up easily. He used the influence of the army to threaten people and nobody was held accountable for the grotesque theft from the treasury. The Third Republic had commenced. While inflation was 64% annually from 1979 to 1989, it went to 3,616% annually from 1990 to 1995. They kept printing money and adding zeros and more zeros to the amount. One reality, and joke, 
was that pocket calculators did not have enough zeros for bookkeepers to do their jobs properly. The largest banknote ended up being a 5 million Zaire bill that Mobutu had printed up. Yet, it took a staggering 110 million Zaires to be worth only $1. Here's another interesting anecdote of the crazy inflation shared by Paul Noren. Inflation was so bad at the time that prices were going up 15% a day. Someone said, yeah, if you went into a bar and ordered a beer, you had to order two at once because by the time you ordered the second one, it would be more expensive than the first one, uh, that kind of thing, you know. And I, I remember buying stuff in Kinshasa. The prices in the morning were really different from what they were in the afternoon. Prime Minister Chesiketti declared this printing of a five million Zaire bill unlawful. The soldiers refused to be paid in this monopoly money, so they went on a plundering spree. Lawlessness prevailed with looting, stealing, and destruction. Meanwhile, the reality of life for his citizens was completely ignored by Mobutu. His daughter had a wedding about this time. He didn't see the problem or the hypocrisy with 2,500 guests, lobster, caviar, French wine, and even a special round-trip airplane trip to Europe to deliver the wedding cake. No, he thought Chesiketti was the problem. So in March 1993, he conclaved with his old NPR buddies and set up his own government, parliament constitution, and prime minister. And he decided to create a new currency called the Nouveau Zaire, or New Zaire. Needless to say, the country's politics and government was in complete chaos. Food became scarce, and death rates for children jumped to 10%. It was a horrible time, economically and politically. Meanwhile, with the missionaries being evacuated with little notice, preparations for transition to the local church leadership was accelerated. The Free Church Mission, under which my mom and dad served, had been working towards a plan of full transition by 1996. The mission had been working alongside the local church and its leadership for 70 years at this point, and the ultimate goal of a missionary is to work oneself out of a job. Unfortunately, with the 1991 evacuation, this only accelerated the transition plan. This meant the local Zairean church was left to continue their work five years earlier than planned. Add to the challenge was the downward spiral of the economy and the political issues and unrest. Nonetheless, the work continued even with the baton pass being earlier than scheduled. Leaders rose up and the work and ministries continued without the missionaries' physical presence and involvement or direct support. Our sister mission, the Covenant Church, continued on with their work, returning many missionaries to Zaire in 1992 when peace returned to the area. Pete Ekstrand, who just retired after serving 40 years with the Covenant Church in Congo, was the field representative at the time. In fact, I remember Pete and his wife Cindy showing up in Zaire for their first term in the early 1980s. I was a short-termer, having finished a couple years of college, and was the gopher, meaning go for this and go for that, such as hauling freight and the like, as well as being a high school teacher for the 1982-1983 school year. Pete and Cindy were experiencing Zaire for the first time, starting their ministry in teaching and pastoral work. We all lived at Gemina, so we interacted a lot. Wow, I can't believe it's been 40 years. Pete explains how the missionary leadership offered support for the year or so that they were evacuated and not present in the country. We communicated with telephones to Bangui, with letters, regular letters sent through the mail, 
and faxes. Uh, this is prior to email, 1991. So, you know, we just spent the money to do the, the phone calls and the President Diwali was in Kinshasa when we evacuated in September. He was at the uh, national, uh, not conference, but uh, studying what should be done for the Constitution and everything. He was stuck in Kinshasa. Vice President Liotta was the one who was just keeping tabs on everything and going around. And he would travel from time to time regularly to Bangui because he also needed to get money for a lot of the expenses of keeping things going. Uh, with the various ministries, uh, sensories, um, personnel, hospital, and all that stuff. Most of the Covenant missionaries returned to Zaire in 1992 to continue their support of the local church called the Communité Évangélique Ubangi Mongala, or the acronym CEUM. It's the Evangelical Community of the Ubangi Mongala. Their goal was to continue the transition plan that was in process of being developed to ultimately turn over the running of the local church to the Zairean leaders in the near future. So how did the church fare during the 1991 to 1992 period with the missionaries gone? The local church, the, the CUM, did a fantastic job moving forward in all areas of ministry. They had good, uh, good reporting on what was taking place. Everything was kept safe and secure. There was no unrest in our area to even have issues. We were very, very grateful and praised them for it. And, you know, it was a, that was a, a growing experience for both for the mission and the church because we realized, okay, now we got to start out where are the growth points because the Congolese need to be fully in charge and we need to be relinquishing, turning over more and more control. We're much more deliberate and working on that in the years to come. So with the missionaries returning in 1992 and things starting to get back to a normal routine, the economy continued to have its challenges and political turmoil continued. Then, in 1994, the Hutu and Tutsis engaged in their civil war in neighboring Rwanda. Many of you may remember the stories in the local newspaper and TV news showing photos and reporting on the 100 days of horrific genocide. From April to July 1994, roughly 1 million people were killed with guns and machetes. There had been conflict for generations between the Tutsi tribe, which amounted to about 15% of the population, and the Hutus, comprising about 85%. The Tutsis had been favored by the Belgian colonists and had placed many of them in key government and political positions. The Hutus and their soldiers pillaged and burned the country on their way out and crashed across the border into Zaire. This then led to several years of crisis on the eastern border of the country with dealing with over a million refugees. I personally went in 1994 for about three weeks to help in the refugee camps in Goma, Zaire. Since I speak French and Lingala, which is a language that is spoken throughout the country, and I'd spent lots of time dealing with government officials during my time in country, I knew I could be an asset to my relief organization. There were an estimated 100,000 orphan kids. Many of you may remember the CNN footage of fleeing Rwandans crossing the border over an eight-foot-wide bridge into Bukavu at the south end of Lake Kivu. I'd gone into Rwanda to do some assessment work and cross that very same bridge. My non-government organization, or NGO, was called World Relief, Inc. 
We were responsible for medical and nutritional care for about 175 of these orphan kids. It was a tough deal seeing these people displaced and under the control of the RPF, the Rwanda Patriotic Front soldiers. But I will save that for another separate podcast episode. So for several years, there was confusion, disarray, and instability throughout the country, and more so along the Rwanda, Uganda, and Burundi borders. Nearby Rwanda, led by Paul Kagame, wanted to neutralize the refugee camps, but they were in a neighboring sovereign country, Zaire. Furthermore, his eyes were on some of the spoils of the area, as eastern Zaire is rich in coltan, which is used in cell phones, and other valuable natural resources. So Kagame recruited several folks, including Laurent Kabila. Remember him from the 1964 failed rebellion? So he decided to create the Democratic Alliance Force, AFDL, which was a rebel and political force. So while Paul Kagame said he only wanted to neutralize the refugee camps as payback to the Hutu RPF for their 1994 genocide, his real goal was to go all the way to Kinshasa, the capital, and have Mobutu step down. The forces went into the refugee camps and shot mortars and used machine guns and killed people indiscriminately. Children, women, grandparents, all killed. The refugees ran back into Rwanda, or west inland, into Zaire. The area was in complete turmoil, and now it was also Zairean refugees leaving the eastern part of the Congo and moving west to safety. The Zaire army chased the Rwandan Hutus. The mass of humanity moved west, and more killings, disease, cholera, and hunger ensued. Kagame had again turned another country into a total mess for his takeover, just like he'd done in Rwanda and Uganda previously. The war had started. It was the first of two wars. This one lasted seven months. It is estimated that two to 300,000 of the Rwanda Hutu refugees had been murdered. Yet Kabila's rebels, who promised peace and structure, ravaged the country as they moved towards Kinshasa. Laurent Kabila and his AFDL rebel group made their route mainly along the south of the country going from east to west. As he went from village to village and city to city with his rebel army, they'd loot, burn, steal, and pillage the local population. Common village folks ran into the forest to be safe from the advancing rebels and Rwandan soldiers. Many Zairians died due to starvation, disease, and killings as they lived in the forest for months on end to escape the conflict. Dengue fever, malaria, poor nutrition, dysentery from bad water, and so on. It is estimated that another 100,000 people died in the forest, besides the two to 300,000 at the hand of Laurent Kabila's rebels and the Rwandan rebels meeting out their justice on the Hutu refugees. I've asked Segbewi Kokenago, not his real name, a highly educated Congolese man who is living in Southern California to share his recollection of the first war. Oh, they, there was a lot, a lot. There was genocide of, uh, of the Hutus when you read the report of the UN. That's called genocide. They called it openly genocide. They killed, I mean, the estimation goes at least 400,000 of people who they found, I mean, when they were marching, going from east to west. And uh, so it was awful. It was awful. But then later on, when Kabila became president, he tried to distance himself from that and tried to put the tag on some other people. He put the tag on uh, definitely the team that he called the people that came from Rwanda and Uganda, but mainly Rwanda. He was really very much concerned about it. 
Meanwhile, the local expatriates and missionaries knew that things were not safe. And again, in 1996, Paul Norn and his fellow missionary associates had to evacuate again. This time, it was virtually for good, and many would never return to Zaire. At that point, they'd set up what they call a tripwire. This is what we're going to do when this happens. When the rebel troops were actually verified in Boomba, which is only 400 kilometers away by road, that's time for everybody to go before you have people shooting at you. At that point, uh, Luiada was the president at that time, and he said, look, I would rather you all left because I know you don't want to necessarily, but we are going to have to flee into the woods ourselves. And to have you as responsibility is going to be really hard for us. So it's better if you can all leave and until a better time. And that's what happened. Kabila's AFDL had the support of the people as most were tired of Mobutu, but also Rwanda and Uganda supported the effort. What is important to note is that Paul Kagame had carefully cultivated a role of victim in the 1994 Hutu versus Tutsi genocide, and as such had gained credit with the U.S. and many European countries. Aid and support and international sympathy had flooded into Rwanda in the late 1990s to help rebuild and support the country. It was the darling of the African continent. Paul Kagame was the golden boy bringing healing to this small country. Local churches sent teams of people to help with education and infrastructure support. I personally have many friends that went to Rwanda on short-term missions trip to build schools, clinics, and the like. I also had a small part in the rebuilding. I volunteered with a charity mountain bike event for 12 years that raised money for bikes for Rwanda and supported the National Rwanda Race Team. As mentioned, the condition of Rwanda captured many people's hearts to help the healing of those people. Countries lent money and people to rebuild. So with that in mind, with the advancing army on Kinshasa, the international community would not let another genocide occur, so they provided support in numerous ways. Meanwhile, Mobutu's allies were dropping like flies, and no one wanted to be associated with him. They knew his gig was up. He'd also contracted prostate cancer, so was a very sick man. Larger cities started to fall to the rebels as they advanced, and then he went off to Europe while his country was in complete mayhem. The advancing rebels took over cities and eventually rolled into Kinshasa. Laurent Kabila declared himself president of the new country, naming it the Democratic Republic of Congo. It was May 17, 1997. He was sworn in on May 29th in the soccer stadium. So it had taken him from being a part of the 1964 Simba Rebellion with his buddy Che Guevara, where they'd been pushed back at Stanleyville thanks to the daring rescue attempt authorized by Lyndon Johnson and executed by the Belgian commandos, to 1997 for him to achieve his goal. He now had the keys and possession of the presidential palace in Kinshasa, and with that, control of the country. He'd finally achieved his dream, and it had taken him 33 years to get there. Mobutu and his family and entourage had escaped to Morocco, and he went into exile. His run as dictator of Congo slash Zaire was over. Yet he still managed to have the bones of his mother and a few others exhumed and taken with him. And four months later, he breathed his last breath. Mobutu Sesiseko Kukungbendu Wazabanga was dead. The army secretary turned army colonel turned dictator 
who fancied himself a god, who had amassed huge wealth, literally billions, at the expense of his country's citizens, had squandered a chance to raise Zaire's standard of living. Instead, he'd ripped them off. And as an irony, he is buried in Morocco, not even his own country. An era was over. I had been around Mobutu since 1965 and was in Congo when he pulled off his 1965 coup d'etat and saw the impact of his political and economic policies. As I grew up, I saw the common man get indoctrinated with the MPR and Mobutu being touted as a god. I watched morning flag raisings at the school. The students, going from elementary school all the way through high school, would sing, chant, and dance the praises of Mobutu. They called it animation or animation, as the kids would really get into it with chants and songs. I remember not even to dare say his name in public for fear of the soldiers or police. Whenever we referred to him, we had a nickname like the Big M or the Big Cheese. Due to his deity status, any mention of his name brought fear of a visit of the police or soldiers. I experienced the crazy inflation and the eroding economy for my friends and family. I remember once when there was an alleged counterfeiting attempt. At the time, the five Zaire bill was green. So instead of chasing down the source of the counterfeit bills, Mobutu decided to simply reprint the five Zaire bill in blue. Of course, not enough new bills arrived in our area, so the common man got ripped off again, losing his cash savings. We had boxes and boxes of green five Zaire bills our mission couldn't exchange. To this day, I have in my den with my African art and paraphernalia a green five Zaire bill and a blue five Zaire bill. I saw the opulence of Badolite, his home village that he poured tens of millions of dollars into to convert it to a first-class city, all in the middle of the jungle. Paved streets, buildings, swimming pools, an airport, a zoo, retail centers, 24-hour electricity, and complete over-the-top improvements that needed significant upkeep and financial support. His palace there was incredible, with the best Italian marble and top-of-the-line furnishings and construction. He spared no expense. Yet, a few feet from his palace, his people were living in utter poverty, and he didn't care. Unfortunately, if one were to visit today, there is nothing but destroyed buildings, destroyed palaces, and a few decomposing and rundown monuments of what had been. The infrastructure is ruined. In all my growing up years, instead of the common man moving forward with opportunity, improved education, more prosperity, better infrastructure, better everything, instead, my friends and their families all seemed to go backwards as things deteriorated. How could any leader of a country not have any conscience of the living conditions of the people while indulging in grotesque wealth and riches? I remember thinking to myself when I heard Mobutu was gone that there was no way anybody would rule as poorly as he had. Nobody would treat the populace as badly and not reinvest the vast natural resources back into the country and infrastructure to better the population's condition. Laurent Kabila just had to be better. The country would start to heal and prosperity would trickle to the common folk. It just had to, and the people deserved so much more. The people had endured 32 years living under a dictator. Hopefully, Kabila would be much better. So does Laurent Kabila bring order and peace and stability to the country after 32 years of dictatorship rule? Does the rebel leader work for the people and bring unity to this dysfunctional country? 
The story of President Laurent Kabila to the present will be told in Episode 5 of the series on The History of Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.